You are live with the App Show. Mike Agarbo here in studio. I've got my good friend Carmeet Levy with me today. We've got a very interesting program. Uh, our radio show is all about the world of uh, apps and mobile technology. We're going to be talking Chromebooks. A lot of schools use them, are, but are they the good deal they seem to be? They're only a few hundred dollars, dramatically cheaper, but how long do they last and how much does it cost to support them over the long run? We'll also be talking about AI once again, and now as it relates to spam email. Your inbox could, probably will, be flooded soon with AI-written spam email. And uh, we'll also be talking about a really cool music accelerator program that MasterCard is behind, uh, helping artists uh, digitally, uh, I guess, sign their creations using NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Uh, It's really kind of a a cool thing they're doing, and uh, we'll uh, walk you through that as well. Uh, Carmen, let's get into some of the app and mobile news uh, this week. Uh, Some rumors happening that I'm kind of excited about. There's a big Google conference coming up very shortly. And uh, Google, they've got their Pixel Android phone. This is a very popular uh, phone with the the nerds because it runs the Android operating system. They've got some great hardware uh, built into it. And uh, it's... uh, it's free of bloatware as well. It's just kind of pure Android and, and glorious. But it looks like the rumor uh, mill has uh, popped out a uh, a folding version of this. Oh, I love this. See, I've I've been following Samsung's journey with their folding devices, but you know, didn't really want to you know buy in on my own because I I've always leaned toward Google Pixels as well for exactly that same reason. It's pure Android. You get. You're the first one on the block to get the next version of Android to get security updates and patches because it doesn't have to go through the vendor as well. It's it's native right from Google. And that's a huge selling point. And if, if everything else is equal, price and features and performance, um, that's the reason to get a Pixel over any other vendor's Android device. And so the same logic plays out with, with a foldable device. And the fact that Google is saying it'll have all of the, you know, the hardware goodness, the new Tensor G2 processor, the, you know, the uh, 24 hour battery, all these awesome things that you love the Pixel uh, 7 range for, but in a giant foldable version. Uh, with a hinge that is apparently the most durable, robust on the market. You don't have to worry about how many times you fold it and unfold it. Uh, I'm in, and this could be one of those devices that kind of finally convinces uh, you know, me and everyone else that, okay, now's the time to get a foldable device. Who wouldn't want a device that folds small in your pocket but opens up bigger uh, than the average tablet? Like, I love that. Uh, and it'll let me get more done on the go, but not have to always think like I'm carrying around a giant phone in my pocket. Um, I like the price point too. I mean, obviously it's expensive. It'll probably be a couple of thousand dollars here in Canada, uh, but that's what a high-end Android or iPhone goes for as well. And you're getting something bigger. And if you don't have to buy a tablet as well, your one phone can do double duty. So you're kind of saving there as well. This is definitely a device to watch. May 10th is uh, when they're expected to announce it at Google I.O. Um, and conceivably, if things go the way they say they are, and the individual who's leaking this is apparently pretty reliable, uh, we may be able to buy these as early as June. And it'll it'll certainly put the spurs to Samsung, which has put, you know, really gone all in on foldables over the last couple of years. Uh, but Google's been sort of quiet, sort of watching other vendors make their own mistakes and you know introduce duds uh, and then iterate them. And now Google will come in with some pretty mature, pretty polished technology, uh, and that's certainly something that I want that I that I, I want to take a close look at, and certainly something that I'm setting aside my uh, my my technology budget for right now. 
Yeah, I'm interested to see if they do come out with it and how well they'll do. I've had a chance to try out the Samsung uh, folding uh, phones over the past few years, and I think they're fabulous. The engineering that's gone into those have uh, been amazing. I have to say, uh, out of the two, they've got the the fold and the flip. The flip is the smaller one. It kind of folds into a, mm-hmm. a small clamshell, almost like the old Nintendo Game Boy uh, uh, Game Boys they, they used to have. And I love that one because it just it folds so small in my pocket. You know what I mean? Like the, yeah. the larger fold one, which I think this pixel is more kind of like the, the fold version of it's Samsung's folding. One, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's beautiful. It's so nice, but it's big. You know what I mean? It's thick. And that takes yeah. up a lot of real estate in, in my pocket. Yeah, it does, and and you don't get that visceral feel. Like like I love the 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 the, the Samsung Flip because uh, I I miss being able to hang up on a call by just you know, flipping it closed, and not in anger, but just that feel of it. And you sort of get that with that small device. It sort of returns phones to a size that the average hand can handle. Um, and certainly, as phones have gotten bigger over the last number of years, people with smaller hands have have, have reported that's a problem. And even the larger folding devices, and, and sort of looking at the numbers, it's 5.8 inches when it's folded in, and it's 7.6 inches when it's unfolded, which is a big device. So this is not a one-hander, not by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but if it goes well, I would I would imagine that Google would probably expand the folding options and maybe introduce a smaller version as well. I think there's still people out there who like the virtues of small, and I'm certainly one of them. Quickly, we've got just a couple of minutes here in the news section uh, to talk about Twitter, because that's what we do every week. There's always some crazy thing going on. Looks now uh, like uh, Twitter is adding blue checks to the counts of dead celebrities. Uh, The blue checks are kind of like a a verified, subscribed version of uh, Twitter. Uh, You know, typically in the past, uh, celebrities and journalists, we would get them for free. But now Elon Musk thinks he can make some money selling that on a monthly basis. Uh, so why do these dead celebrities have blue <laughs> check marks saying they're subscribed right. to Twitter blue? Because all of the people who used to work for Twitter who would have been tasked with validating the database and making sure that weird things like this don't happen have all been fired. Um, so there's really nobody back at the company to make sure that all of these automated processes remove all these legacy checks at you know add these other checks at the say so of elon musk that there's a human being behind who's actually quality assuring you know quality you know qa testing this in advance to make sure that it doesn't look weird and so no chadwick boseman um and kobe bryant who are both very clearly dead did not sign up for twitter blue despite the fact that their profiles say they did and so um, you know, it's just another it, it's just another example, another crash uh, in just an endless train wreck of headlines like this that just illustrate that this this place has become uh, a circus and 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 not even a fun circus, you know, not the ones we liked as kids, but the ones that we look at through the the lens of adulthood and we go, this is really cringeworthy. I don't want to be a part of it. Um, and if the company messes up on these things, what else is it messing up on? Uh, and do I really want to be a part of this? And so this is like, like it's hardly a day goes by that Twitter isn't generating one of these embarrassing headlines. This is the one that really stopped me in my tracks and said, you know what? I, 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 I think at this point, I've really got to start thinking about my exit plan, my personal exit plan. I still use it for work. I need to but I'm spending a lot less time on it. I'm engaging far less with it. Uh, and honestly, at some point, associating my personal brand with a company that would uh, engage in behavior like this, I kind of have to wonder if I want to continue that. And I think a lot of 
Twitter users are looking at that and saying exactly the same thing. We're going to have to take a break here on the app show. When we come back, Google Chromebooks, uh, the laptops that are just a few hundred dollars that all the schools are buying, are they as a good a deal as they're cracked up to be? Well, we'll dive into that. You're listening to the app show here on the Chorus Radio Network. We'll be back after this. You are back with the program. We're going to get into Chromebooks now. Google uh, has... uh, done, a, I think, a fairly good job of uh, pushing Chromebooks uh, into the marketplace uh, over the years. They're wild, uh, widely uh, used in education in schools. Uh, but now there's uh, new reports saying that they're not built to last. Uh, Carmi, what, is, what does this mean? Uh, Chromebooks, are they just not durable? Are they not getting the security updates? What's, what's going on? Well, they're definitely durable. A Chromebook, it looks like a laptop, but it's a lot cheaper. It, it runs on you know Google's web operating system and services. So you plug it in, sign up, and, and you get all your Gmail services. You get all of your Google Classroom services, uh, Google Docs, Google Sheets, uh, which you know my wife, is a uh, she teaches grade one and grade two, and a lot of her curriculum is delivered on Chromebooks. And certainly during the pandemic, uh, that was the primary when when classrooms and schools were shut down. Chromebooks were literally the savior of the educational system, and they continue to be absolute pillars uh, of her ability to deliver curriculum and and pretty much teachers everywhere else. And the neat thing is, especially for cash strapped schools and school districts, is that they are significantly less expensive than an equivalent laptop. The idea being that they don't run heavy duty software; they run web services. So basically, there it's almost like a like a netbook of yore. It's a it's a it's a network connected device that runs web based services through a browser. Uh, and there's an appeal to that because it's a lot easier. It's a lot cheaper to buy. It's a lot easier to maintain because you don't have to update the device. You just update the service online and plug it in and you're good to go. Uh, but now there's this uh, there's this organization it's called the Public Interest Research Group, or PIRG, in the U.S., and they published something called uh, Chromebook Churn. It's a report that essentially accuses Google of not doing everything that it can to ensure that these things last, basically saying they are designed from the beginning not to last. And so as a Chromebook, physically it can last for as long as a laptop can, but Google is making design decisions in terms of how the hardware is built and how the software is rolled out and how security updates are made available to the device over the lifetime of the Chromebook that essentially mean that the device could become a doorstopper four or five years after it's bought, long before the actual hardware wears out. And they're saying that you know, you're selling it as cheap because it's cheap to buy up front, but the total cost of ownership ends up being a lot more, in many cases, more than an equivalent laptop would be because your, Google is deliberately hobbling these devices right from the outset. And they're saying that's that's dirty pool. It's also not sustainable. And quite frankly, considering education systems are so strapped for money, it's really the wrong thing to do for our kids and for their future. And you know, as the husband of a teacher, I'm not going to disagree. It, so are they essentially saying that these things got like a four-year lifespan? Yeah. So, you know, anyone who's had a laptop for a number of years, so say you buy a a MacBook from Apple, uh, Apple will provide updates to it for a certain period of time. And then eventually you'll get a little notification saying, you know, you're, you know, you can no longer update to the latest version of Mac OS and we'll continue to give you security updates for a couple of years, but then we're going to stop completely. Right now, that period is about 
five to seven years, depending on which device you have. And Apple is lauded in the industry for having a long, like a longer sort of period of, of, of updates. And the reason that you want those updates is, is nobody wants to run a device that doesn't have the latest security uh, patches and fixes applied to it. It makes you very vulnerable to cyber attack. Um, and so Chromebooks are exactly the same thing, but in many cases, uh, that window is 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 four years, uh, if, if you're lucky, uh, which means that the device is still working fine, but then you get a little note from Google saying, nope, sorry, you're not going to get any updates. And because it's a network connected device that doesn't really have a lot of processing power on its own, uh, you know, on, you know, within the hardware itself, you're kind of at Google's mercy. It essentially becomes a very expensive paperweight. Um, and they're saying that Google has been pulling back on those windows of update availability um, and essentially sending the message to school boards and individuals who buy Chromebooks. Well, you know, the answer is just go buy another one, you know, get a newer one. It's it's <laughs> even though the hardware really hasn't evolved all that much. It's not like uh, web software needs huge amounts of power on the, the, the remote device. And so, you know, as a technologist, it's like there's no reason why these things can't receive updates for an indefinite period of time, maybe seven, eight, nine years, if you know, or ten years, as originally envisioned. But Google seems to be pulling back on that because it just wants to sell more hardware, which, from where I sit, is kind of dirty pool. But are they even making any money on the hardware, Carmi? Like these things are so cheap. You know what I mean? You can get these things for a few hundred bucks. So, like, what kind yeah. of what kind of margins? Like, what? Like this is like chump change to Google. It is, and and it, it's almost like you know buy the you know buy the razor for 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 cheap, but you know they'll, they'll get you on the blades, and that's really what Chromebooks are is. Google and its partners, because you can buy uh, you know other branded Chromebooks as well. They sell them fairly inexpensively, but then Google and its partners make a lot of money on the subscription services. You know, I'm sure uh, you know most schools have a, a budget line item for uh, for the, you know the Google Classroom environment that runs on these on these devices, and so you subscribe on a per student basis or a per class basis. And then, you know, you have a certain number of sign-ins. And then over time, you know, that's recurring revenue for Google. And so they're happy to not make money on the hardware because the hardware really just becomes the channel through which they can generate this ongoing revenue. But if you're a school and you have to buy that hardware now more often, more frequently, that's a huge problem for you. Google's not profiting, but it's costing you more. Um, and if, if you know, a kid breaks a key on a keyboard, and yeah, that happens all the time because I've seen it, um, those keyboards, they're not designed to be replaced. In many cases, the entire Chromebook has to be replaced uh, because it would cost four or $500 to physically fix one key <laughs> on a $300 Chromebook which is ridiculous and incredibly unsustainable. So um, so yeah, Google's making money on the services, but everyone else is being stuck with bills they shouldn't be forced to pay. Your wife's a teacher. What what do they use in her classrooms? Uh, they use Chromebooks from, from various manufacturers that they sort of bought in flights over a, a period of years as they've had budget available for this. So there's some that have the Google branding on them, some that have Acer or Asus, whatever it is, uh, and they just sort of keep maintain this sort of uh, you know, uh, fleet of devices for different classrooms. Uh, but the problem here is that some are newer and some are older. And the older devices, unfortunately, uh, many of them, you, you come in on a Monday morning and this error message pops up. You're not getting software updates anymore. And this device is no longer eligible. 
even though it physically works, even though it's not broken, um, it is now vulnerable and it must be replaced. And and because the the terms continue to change and Google keeps moving the, the goalposts, so to speak, uh, it's very difficult for schools to plan around that. They can't say, this is the lifespan of the device. This is how I'm going to manage the budget through that lifespan. If the rules change midstream, well, guess what? Uh, they're pulling from some other budget in order to ensure that this kid can continue to work. But it is appealing to schools, though, Carmi. I mean, these things are, like we've said, so dirt cheap compared to like a MacBook. Um, you know, a MacBook, mm-hmm. you're $1,000 plus, easy. Yeah. And so you can and, get like and, two or three of these things for the same price, theori- right theoretically. And exactly. They're cheaper to buy, which of course is amazing, right? So like the upfront cost is significantly less. And even more importantly, the ongoing maintenance of them is so much easier. To maintain a MacBook or a Windows machine uh, in a classroom environment is, I mean, any, and I've sat on the on the board and the executive of my kid's school. I used to do that. And it was a nightmare because you would get a call. Well, they deleted some icons on the desktop and, <laughs> and now you've got to reformat the drive and you've got to re-image it. And uh, we were getting calls all day, every day. And that was just the way it was with conventional laptops. Chromebooks move, move it away from that because now, well, okay, now we're just going to automatically update them all just by connecting them to the web and, and accessing one website. And just as long as they're all logged in, they all have the latest software. And we don't have to worry about it. It is a remarkable technology for the school environment. But you know, in the background, Google has, has made some changes to its policies that are are upping the cost and upping the hassle factor and reducing that margin between traditional laptops and Chromebooks and basically meaning that over the life of the hardware, schools aren't saving any money anymore. Not like they used to. A lot of math to be done there. Yeah, very much so. The, it's no longer the streaming deal it was even three or four years ago. And I think the pandemic certainly changed that. Um, you know, to Google's credit, it used the pandemic as a way to really drive the Chromebook economy. People realized the benefits of this architecture, this you know sort of thin laptop architecture. Um, and there certainly are, are reasons for it. And certainly my wife recognizes those and, and incorporates that into the class. It's, it, it's revolutionary technology, uh, but this PIRG, uh, report, uh, you know, sort of illustrates that Google maybe you know moving or backing away from the altruism that typified early Chromebook experiences, and is maybe maybe trying to make a little bit more money off of it than it should. And yes, it's a profit-seeking company, but when you walked up to millions of schools around the world and said, "We have a better way for you," you locked them in month after month, and now you're squeezing, you know, you're squeezing them for cost. Uh, that's a little bit wrong, and I really do think that it's, it's sort of time for that the, the playing field to be leveled somewhat. We're going to have to take a break here. When we come back, more tech to talk. Stay tuned. You are back with the program. Mike Erbo here in studio. We're going to talk music now and NFTs. We have a, an interesting guest with us today. It's Shauna Miller from MasterCard, and uh, she's going to tell us about their new Artist Accelerator program and how it's incorporating Web3 technology, uh, things like NFTs. Thanks for joining us, Shauna. It is my pleasure. Tell us about this program and, and why is MasterCard involved with it? Yeah, I think from a MasterCard brand perspective, literally everything we do is about connecting consumers with priceless possibilities. Um, and we do that through passions like music. And it's that is one of those special things that completely transcends barriers. There's there's literally no better way to build community. So we've had a longstanding commitment to uh, building music innovation, always looking for ways, of course, to connect uh, emerging artists with fans. 
And the MasterCard Artist Accelerator, which you just referenced, will give artists the opportunity to do just that exactly. Uh, using something called Web3 technology. And that allows them to collaborate with other musicians and artists that will allow them to enhance their music experience and quite frankly, allow them to uh, you know, build their careers. And uh, why, why NFTs? How, how's that going to help the program? Um, for me, Web3 uh, is the next evolution of, of the internet. So concepts such as you know, decentralized ownership uh, by big companies and more ownership by individuals of their content and their access, uh, blockchain technologies, to- token-based economics. So for music specifically, it is becoming the new standard upon which uh, things are being created and shared. And if we talk about NFTs specifically, and for anybody listening who might not know, NFT is a non-fungible token. Think about it as a digital, uh, digital collectible. So a unique digital asset that are uh, verified on the blockchain. So today, for example, people can buy and sell unique digital assets like art, music, and videos through the use of something like digital collectibles. The NFT in this particular case for the MasterCard Accelerator program allows you access to the program. It's a simple way to give you access, a fun way to give, give you access, and it becomes a digital collectible for you in that process. And so how, how does one get involved with this? What, what do they do? What are the steps? Sure. If you're a passionate music fan in Canada, or quite frankly, honestly, Mike, if you're a, a passionate fan of Web3, either or, we would encourage you to, to visit the website and mint your limited time MasterCard Music Pass NFT. And from there, that gives you access to a number of different things. You'll learn how to use blockchain technology, you'll learn about Web3, you'll learn about the metaverse. And the whole point of this is to strengthen connection, collaborations with fans, and and ultimately, like, how do these artists make a living doing what they love? So there are a few things, just to give you a bit of detail here. The Music Pass is going to unlock Web3 educational tools. So there is a ton of information there to help you understand the basics of what is Web3, What's the metaverse? Why is it important in creating and sharing music today? Um, And then starting a little bit later in May and June, there's collaboration opportunities. Um, So things like special access to an artist showcase, the ability to hear from other artists and mentors on their journey in navigating and creating in this very nascent world, of course. Web3 is new to to everyone, particularly the, the music industry. And ultimately down the line will be access to tools to help them in this process. So for example, an AI powered tool to compose their own music tracks. And at the end of the day, those tracks produced through the accelerator program will be redeemable as NFTs and performed live by the artists as a special showcase of their work that they've developed during the program. So a really beautiful way to teach and educate, but also give them a platform to showcase. So kind of just uh, breaking it down in just very simple terms, uh, NFTs uh, basically give um, undeniable ownership to the artists of any of the music they create. You got it. Exactly. It, it, it's interesting. I, I know a lot of listeners are, are uh, you know, tuned in here and they're like, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, this sounds very complicated. Uh, but I, I went through the um, uh, the website there and signed up. It, it's, it's stupid simple. Like, <laughs> it's so it, simple it, to get in. 
It's, it's, it's really simple. And I think one of the things that could feel like a barrier, there's a lot of discussion around wallets and how wallets work uh, in the metaverse. We are offering people what is called a custodial wallet that makes it easy for literally anyone to sign up directly on the site. As you said, it's a very simple process and it's a simple way for them to store their digital collectibles. And that will include the MasterCard Music Pass. Again, that NFT or that Music Pass is your access to the MasterCard Accelerator, Artist Accelerator program. If at such time you become more proficient in Web3, more proficient in the metaverse, uh, and you want to move into your own personal wallet, we will give you the tools and the, the uh, information that you need to do that. So the the empowerment comes from the education, the information, but also the support for the artists along the way. So not only, you know, this, this is a... a- kind of a cool tool for the artists to start getting involved with uh, NFTs and Web3.0. Um, but uh, for just ordinary folks that just want to learn more about uh, that whole process, this is kind of a tool to do that. Yeah, and uh, let me tell you this, even for our team, and so we're talking, this is the marketing communications team at MasterCard. It, the The information that is available on there has been incredibly helpful for a level set on what is seriously nascent technology for everyone if you just want to learn the basics of what web3 are about what is the basics of the metaverse what is the basics of blockchain uh, blockchain technology i think because the world is going to be so significantly influenced by digital ownership digital content digital empowerment if if nothing else that will give you kind of the building blocks to understand that world and how to navigate within it well, I think that's important uh, because on the program, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, NFTs in the past and blockchain, and, and I know it's still very confusing for folks out there. But to your point, the the whole digital ownership uh, side, uh, blockchain technology and F- NFTs aren't going away. They're just becoming more popular. Uh, so being able to understand this technology, I think, is uh, almost an important life skill that uh, we all need to know, you know, coming up here in the future. Right. And how do you have your own providence? How do you have your own sense of ownership? And, uh, you know, how can you navigate and dictate yourself in that new world? I think it's going to be incredibly important to understand that. So, Shauna, where where can people go to get involved with the uh, the Artist Accelerator program? Yeah, I think the the one thing I do want to say, Mike, is you do not have to be a Web3 or a Metaverse aficionado to join the program. That's the first place I want to start here. You just have to have a passion for music and a passion for the people who create it. So I would invite any and all music fans, any and all Web3 fans to visit artistaccelerator.mastercard.com to learn more. And we'd love to have you. Sean, I want to thank you uh, for joining us today and uh, giving us the lowdown on this. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Mike. That was Shauna Miller from MasterCard talking about the new Artist Accelerator program. When we come back from the break, more Tech to Talk. Stay tuned. You are back with The App Show. Mike Agarbo here with my good friend, Carmi Levy. What week doesn't go by when we don't also talk about artificial intelligence? It's just kind of uh, infiltrating into everything now. And now there's a worry that AI-written spam email will be flooding our inboxes. Uh, if you've had a chance to try some of these uh, AI language models like ChatGPT, you've seen how quickly and how well it can write just about anything you need from a blog post to an essay 
to coding, uh, recipes. I mean, you name it, it can write it. And so there are some folks now that are using this to write spam email. How much of a problem do you think this is going to be, Carmi? Uh, it's a massive problem. If you think about the potential for artificial intelligence to automate any process, um, you know, think about how uh, it can be used for good to, you know, um, you know, iterate medical research um, um, tests to sort of, you know, solve, you know, cure cancer uh, and go through mo- more tests than any human ever could do on their own. But if you sort of flip it over to the dark side, it can be it can be used by spammers to um, identify weak points in spam filters and ensure that that spam message gets through. It can be used to scan, you know, obviously because artificial intelligence is trained by data that is out there. So it can be used to customize that message. So once it gets through the spam filter, it can actually make it look like it's relevant to you because it's gone out and it's pulled data that's relevant to you. And that makes it look legit. So not only does it show up in your inbox, whereas previously it didn't, it can also make it seem like it's coming from a legitimate individual when we clearly know it's not. And so the power of AI in the hands of what we like to call malevolent actors it's kind of terrifying, and it basically means that uh, if you thought spam was bad now, it's going to get supercharged in the very near future. <sighs> it's kind of freaking me out. I get enough <laughs> crap in my email inbox already. Um, you know, I own my company, and as such, I guess I get targeted even more uh, mm-hmm. by a lot of these marketing companies. And you know, they've they've got a, an email sales funnel. Basically, they just keep hitting me with email after email till I open them or respond, and then I get another one. Do you know what I mean? Till I actually do some sort of interaction. And now having AI written email as well, uh, I don't know. I'm just uh, kind of freaks me out. Is there anything you think we can do about this? Yeah, I mean, the good news is, is that, you know, better protections are on the way. And spam has always been a bit of a cops and robbers, you know, sort of good guy versus bad guy. The You know, the, on, like an endless ongoing superpower arms race that the spam filters get better and the security protections get better. And then the bad guys figure out a way around it. So then the good guys come up with even better technology and back and forth and back and forth it goes. And so... I think this is just a case of AI is now in the hands of malevolent actors, of spammers, of scammers, of cyber criminals. They're using it to do their their you know lousy stuff. They're they're you know they're you know they're trying to get through and fool us into doing things that we probably shouldn't be doing. And we, on the other hand, are now looking to security vendors to use AI to come up with better protections. And so I we're already seeing uh, all of these tools, and certainly the platform we're seeing Google build it into their messaging platforms, Microsoft. Um, everyone's rolling out the big guns and and over time the guns on both sides of the the battle get bigger uh, the explosions get bigger but i think we'll over time we'll still maintain some kind of balance but it you know we can't walk away from our accountability as well as consumers it's still up to us to use the tools that are available to us make sure that we're comfortable and familiar with the with the spam filters that are built into our messaging platforms uh and we still have to be critical consumers of every message that we receive so when it shows up in your inbox uh don't just react to it or respond to it still take the time to slowly read it and make sure is this real or not it's going to get harder to tell but we still have to take the time to at least try if we don't uh then of course the bad guys win it is going to be hard, Carmi, because I just seeing what 
AI is capable of. Like it's going to yeah. get to a point where uh, these uh, malevolent uh, actors can use AI to actually scan me, like all my social accounts, and get kind of a uh, a picture of me, and then kind of personalize those emails. Do you know what I mean? Like they'll yeah. know who my wife is, uh, who I work with, you know, some of the projects that I've I've done because maybe I've listed them on uh, LinkedIn. It, it will be very difficult to tell if they're human or not. And when they're so personalized like that, I, I would typically open those. But now, you know, I guess I'm going to have to spend more time going through all these emails. Yeah, the, the, the level of fidelity continues to go up. And certainly, you know, as you start throwing in things like uh, voice cloning, deep fake videos, uh, you know, AI generated imagery um, that can customize that message to you, it gets harder and harder to, to tell legit from non-legit sources. Um, it, we're, so, you know, we're going to have to raise our game uh, as consumers, our personal filters, so to speak, are going to have to get better. But you're right. I mean, there, there are times when I, I something hits my inbox and I look at it and, and I hover over it for 10, 15 minutes, whatever, and I'm, I still can't tell. Um, and in cases like that, rather than responding to the message, if it's from an organization that I'm familiar with or if it's from someone who is, it claims to be from someone who I know, I will then reach out to them directly. It's kind of like the grandparent scan. Don't respond to the grandparent scan. Get off the call and call the person yourself. I do the same thing with email as well. I stop responding to a lot of emails that I receive for exactly that reason. I instead, I, I've got that person's number. I'll just text them and ask them if they sent me anything. And usually the answer is no. And that's when I just delete it. But um, they're getting so good. Uh, it's getting harder and harder to tell. But what I find is most of us aren't even taking the time to try to figure it out, and we need we need to. Uh, even if it seems like it's a losing battle, it's at least a start. Uh, we do ourselves no favors by just blindly responding to everything or not really considering what's hitting our inboxes. You, you brought up voice cloning as well. I don't know if you've tried any of these yet. I've tried a couple, and I don't think they're ready for prime time yet. Uh, I, I tried uh, a few that can, you know, reportedly uh, clone your voice. I tried it with mm-hmm. mine. It, it kind of sucked, <laughs> but it sounded real. Yeah. It didn't sound like mine, maybe 20%. But as you know, this technology is just going to get uh, better and, and better. And that's what I start worrying about that, you know, we're talking about email right now, but what about phone calls? With, yeah, that's with- the, like right now, when you hear the result of a voice cloning um, activity, it still sounds robotic. It still sounds clipped. The words don't flow all that well into each other. So it's a pretty easy tell, but you're absolutely right. The The very nature of AI is that it, 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 it improves fairly quickly. It teaches itself. It gets better. Uh, so at some point, uh, that voice will sound exactly like you and like me and like our significant others and close family members and friends. Uh, and and when you can't tell real from not real, that's when things get kind of scary because that's when you think that your wife is calling you saying you've got to come now. And in fact, you don't or send me that money that you said you were going to send me. And no, wait, my wife never asked me for money. Um, so, you know, as the fidelity goes up, uh, it, it, you know, that weight on our shoulders uh, gets heavier uh, and it gets harder. We're going to have to lean harder on the protective tools that are available to us. We're going to have to look at the security features that are already built into most of the messaging platforms that we use. Um, but most of us don't pay attention to them. Um, and if we did, we'd have a kind of a better chance of not being fooled. But I think we really do owe it to ourselves to keep our eyes open. And, you know, me and you, um, you know, as sort of 
you know, the, the, the commentators on this technology revolution, that's going to become a key part of our agenda. These are the stories that I tell now. I look at all the tech stories that I cover in a given week or month or whatever. Uh, AI used to pop in every once in a while. Now, uh, like, like some weeks, a third or half of all the stories that I consider and that I talk about are AI based. And that's going to continue because it really is the story of our time. And it really needs to change our behavior so that we can navigate this increasingly turbulent landscape. I just want to bring in a kind of a related story here. They did a study, uh, Cornell University, uh, they published in scientific reports. And uh, they found that, you know, while artificial intelligence can improve efficiency and positivity, it also has an impact uh, in the way people express themselves in conversations, meaning that if you receive a reply from me, Carmi, and you suspect that it was written by AI, uh, and, you know, very shortly it probably will be, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, you would have a kind of a, a negative feeling about that. Sure, because, you know, when I'm talking to Mike Agarbo, I want to talk to Mike Agarbo. I don't want to talk to a bot uh, claiming to be Mike Agarbo. And, and, and I think it's the same thing. Like, even when, and you know, when we're messaging back and forth, you know, oftentimes you look at the bottom of your message uh, app and it's got smart replies. And so rather than type it out, you're it's suggesting what you can write next and you just select it. Um, and this Cornell research shows very clearly that when you think that you are receiving a computer generated uh, message, even if it's a simple smart reply, you perceive it negatively because uh, nobody wants to talk to a robot. Uh, and I think that's important because, you know, if as as we move more toward AI in sort of, in, you know, infiltrating our everyday life, I think we really do have to think about how we use the technology and and who we use it with. And will they will they accept it or will they have a problem with it? And and from where I sit, there's still room for humanity. And I, I hope and, and pray uh, that we don't lose that that sense that you know we don't just accept that uh, you know when we go to the airport and we you know you know get checked in that we uh, only deal with chatbots and that we only deal with bots and technology. Carmi, that we Carmi, we're we're heading interact with a human. Yeah, we're heading to a world of chatbots because you know Microsoft is building in uh, you know ChatGPT technology into Office 365. One of the features they were highlighting is that you know with Microsoft Outlook uh, you'll be able to have it uh, write replies for you. And you know mm-hmm. the AI is not bad. It's not bad. I it, mean, it yeah. won't have the it won't have the Carmi Levy or the Mike Agarbo flavor yet. But you yes. you know AI learns and eventually is going to kind of learn our our language and and how we we chat. Yeah, because it's because there's enough content that we as individuals have generated that's out there on our social media feeds that we published that AI has trained on it already. So when I ask it to write something in the style of Carmi Levy or Mike Agarbo, it can actually do that. Is it is it full fidelity? Not even close, but I'm also under no illusions over the next number of years, it's going to get closer and closer. Probably not all the way there, but for most instances, it'll be close enough, um, which on the one hand will free me up but on the you know to do other stuff, but on the other hand, makes it real easy for someone else to pretend to be me. That's all the time we have left for the app show. I want to thank Carmi Levy for joining me once again. Don't forget to listen to our sister show, Get Connected. You can find both the radio shows and the podcast at getconnectedmedia.com. And I want to also thank all the rest of the folks that helped put this program together back at the studio. Mike and uh, Carmi signing off. We'll see you again next time.